Let us hear the word of God. And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I... But with the finger of God cast out devils. No doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let's pray briefly. Father in heaven, we come to the word preached and we pray for divine help. Our hearts are so hard, Father, that without the spirit of God, without the finger of God operative now, we would ascribe the word of God to demons. That is how hard our heart is. So help, Father, the minister, preach by the Spirit of God that they, the congregation, would be touched by the finger of God now, that their hearts would turn unto the Lord, that their hearts would be turned unto the Lord their God. This is our great hope in the preaching of the word. So cause it to come to pass and bless these things that we will consider and open our eyes to behold what wondrous things there are in the word of God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, perhaps no truer statement can be found than to say that the hardest of substances known to man is man's own heart. The hardest of substances known to man is man's own heart. In fact, it's impenetrable by man. The heart of natural man is so hard that it holds them captive and it holds them apart from God. Even when confronted with unimpeachable evidence of the Lord Jesus Christ's power and glory, his mercy, his grace, and his love to sinners, man's heart is so hard that they will blaspheme him. They will refuse to submit their hearts to him. In fact, naturally speaking, a man will only harden his heart all the more when confronted with the glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ in this life. Truly, the hardest substance known to man is the heart of natural man. There is really only one power that can penetrate it, and that is the finger of God. Only the finger of God can penetrate and free man's heart from the powers that have enslaved it, the power of Satan and the power of sin, which totally shackles and chains the heart of man. Only the finger of God can free us, beloved, from our natural heart's malice and hardness towards God. Every believer, so if you're here as a believer, and I trust many, if not most of you are, the beauty of that is this. If you have come to believe on Christ, you can say 
It is the finger of God that has touched my heart. It is God himself that has freed me. I was not even saved by my own heart, my own will, my own desires, my own affections. For they were not present until God touched my heart, until God saved me and God freed me by his power. I was not saved by a minister. I was not saved by an elder. I was not saved by a friend. No, you say something miraculous has happened. Something remarkable has taken place in my life. God from heaven has reached down into the muck and mire of my sinfulness and he has taken away the hardness of my heart. He has changed my heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh that it may beat after himself, that I may have faith in him. This was all God's doing. It could never have been my doing because naturally I would hate and I would despise the Lord. And so if you've come to know Christ, what you say is, it was God's own doing to lead me to Christ, to take away my heart of flesh, a stone and to give me a heart of faith. And that's the glory of salvation. God sovereignly taking us from darkness into his marvelous light to give me eyes to see. And he puts then a new song of praise into my dumb mouth that was mute so long with the praises of God. He has put a new song in my heart, even praise unto my God. This is what happens, this is what transpires when the Lord reaches down and penetrates the most impenetrable substance of all, the human heart. And in fact, to attribute any of the changes that have happened to your heart to anyone else would be blasphemy, which is really the greater lesson here, right? We're not so interested in even for ourselves attributing the works of God to Satan, I trust, in this church. However, to attribute the work of God to anyone else is blasphemy of the highest sort. Well, with those thoughts to set the text before us, our theme is simple. It's freed by the finger of God, freed by the finger of God, and we'll consider it under three headings. First is the possessed man. Second is the divided house. And third is the stronger power. First heading, the possessed man. Well, in our text, Christ frees a man that was demon-possessed from the power of the devil, from Satan. In verse 14, he was casting out a devil and it was dumb and it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake and so on. Well, this man was dumb and, and children in the older language, that means this man was mute. He couldn't speak. He was unable to speak. It's not then children a statement of his intelligence. It merely means that he could not speak. Uh, imagine that. Imagine that not being able to speak. Perhaps all he could do is make unintelligent sounds. Notice this if you've known anyone who is dumb. You know, nonverbal persons are a pitiable case. In a lot of ways, they break our heart, don't they? You know, the devil, he had a great interest in binding a man's tongue because he despises this faculty given to men, doesn't he? You know, one of the ways that man um, shows himself as made in God's image is this, that we can speak intelligibly, unlike the animals, right? Boys and girls, that's one of the ways that you know that you are not like the animals, that you can speak. You are made in the image of God, and so you can speak intelligently. You are not like the beasts. But the devil, 
would like nothing more than to reduce us to the level of beasts, wouldn't he? Um, which, you know, really we've thought about that before. That's what sin does to a man, is it reduces him or her to the level of a beast and takes away God-given uh, attributes. It takes away and blunts that which is made in the image of God. It tries to reduce and erase those things that make us like God in the ways that we are called to be like God. It makes us live for base things and not glorious things. And that is what the devil would make of you. And that is what sin will make you to be, a beast and not a man. And this is often the lament in the scripture, right? That I was as a beast. This is what sin does to us. It doesn't magnify it. It doesn't glorify us. In fact, sin reduces us to something that is quite base and banal. And you see that. You see that, of course, when men are handed over to sins. They become animalistic, don't they? In their lusts, in what they contend for, in what they do. They become brawlers. They become uh, men who are unclean. They'll fornicate with about anything. That's beast-like, friends, and that's what sin will do. Well, I'll get to that in a moment. But there's a higher purpose for the faculties that the Lord has given to us. And when you think of the, the human tongue, you think about the way that God has given us, the reason God has given us the tongue. Well, it is despised by the devil, perhaps most of all, because it was made to praise and bless God's name. You know, this is the main reason that a man is given the faculty to speak, that he may praise God and he may bless the name of God. This is the highest purpose for the tongue. And of course, then you're going to find the devil wanting to make men mute. We'll consider that later. But as we consider the man's condition, it was more desperate than merely being mute. In Matthew 12, 22, the parallel text, you find out that he was also blind. The man, then, you think of this, the man was in quite a desperate state, a terrible state. And we talk, often gloss over the state of men in the Bible, but imagine it. Unable to see, all is darkness and blackness, but also not only not able to see, but as all things are dark to the man, he can't even speak. He can't even cry out. He can't even express the things that are in his heart, the things that he needs, the things that are weighing on him. This is a terrible condition. You know, in a world of special needs, such cases are challenging even today with all of our technology. How do you teach someone like this? Right? How do you teach someone who can't see and who can't speak, where you don't know what they're ingesting into themselves? How do you interact with them? They can't even see their own digits to make signs. They can't respond readily to what you say to them. You know, this man, then, is really in a very special world of misery, brethren. Think of the frustration you would have in such a case, unable to speak, unable to see. All is darkness. You don't know where to take a step. On top of that, no utterance is possible for you. Though your, your soul is made in the image of God and, and you're chained in this way, it's a world of darkness, a desperate and terrible condition. But this was not a natural condition the man had, the Bible reveals, as though he had birth defects or had become blind and mute because of some physical trauma. This was a spiritual problem. 
He was actively possessed by a devil that is a demon. You know, there's a malicious power here that's trying to keep this man from seeing and from speaking. In that, let's just never neglect to see the malice of Satan. See his malice? Here, he takes perverse delight in tormenting men and women, and he's always hated and despised men. Why? Why does he hate men? We are made in God's image. And he hates God most of all. He's no friend to men. Why? Because he is no friend to God. That's the reason. Our uh, Lord reminds us in John 8 that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He delights in death. He delighted in the fall of man, which led us to captivity to sin and captivity to Satan as well. It's because he hates God, though. Let's be clear. He cannot do a thing against God. So the second best thing he can do is to have his malice manifest on those made in God's image. But it's always because of his hatred of God. Now let's also, as we tie this man to the actual deeper spiritual truths that are found here, we have to remember that all unconverted persons are under the bondage, under bondage to Satan himself. So what you are seeing here is a visible manifestation of a spiritual reality of all unconverted persons. Each and every one. This man is a physical portrait. This pathetic man before Christ's deliverance gives us a portrait of spiritual bondage. And these physical portraits are given because spiritual bondage is not as plain to see. And so we have to have these illustrations in the Bible so that we would pity men like this, but we would also in horror see what our thraldom to Satan is like until Christ comes to set us free. And this is just scriptural truth. Ephesians 2, 2 says, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Comes to blindness. You could go to 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world, that is the devil, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, it's, I wish we had time to tie these things together more, should shine unto them. When we see eyes blinded in the scripture, we are seeing, by Satan, we are seeing a picture of the blinding of the mind. It's not physical eyesight, it's the blinding of the mind that the Lord intends for you to see. And that's not as evident in many ways as seeing physical blindness. So the Lord uses a man who Satan has blinded physically to show us the greater and more desperate condition that we are in naturally. The devil, a murderer from the beginning, he takes an active part in blinding the minds of the unbeliever. The unbeliever is not free of Satan. The unbeliever is enthralled to Satan. Why does he not want the light of the glorious gospel of Christ to shine upon them? Lest they be saved from their sin and be reconciled to God. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4. He always wants to put a wedge between God and man. Always. So that man would not be blessed in God. He can't hurt God, as I've said, but he takes his rage against God. He manifests it against those made in his image. You saw that in the garden. What does he whisper? What's the wedge there between Eve and God? 
God is evil. God is not for you. God is hateful. God doesn't want what is best for you. He is withholding from you that which is good. All of this is a lie. To murder men and to keep men from glorifying and enjoying God. Jesus said it well of the serpent. He abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. John 8, 44. So why is it that men believe a lie rather than the truth? You see these things. Their minds are blinded to the truth. And Satan takes an active role in that, lest they be reconciled to God and believe the truth. Instead, they hand themselves over to a lie and believe not the truth of God. And this man, in his desperate condition, is merely a representation of the desperate case of man apart from the power of Christ. And let me say, you know, we've talked about Satan. He's really just an embodiment of sin for us, really. Truth is, as we dive into deeper things, whatever Satan is, sin is far worse because sin is found in us, not outside of us. Satan is outside of us. And if there's nothing in us for him to grab a hold of, like there was nothing in Christ to grab a hold of, there's no mischief he can do to us. Our problem is actually deeper than Satan. It's actually the corruption in us. And that corruption is close to us and near to us as we are fallen men and women. So if you have panicked in a sense, thinking that Satan and his demons may grab a hold of you, we could talk another day about the fact that there's no power that Satan has on the believer to, to, to captive, take us captive. Christ has set us free from his power in that way, though he can still do mischief. However, the greater, the greater thing we have to be um, fearful of is the power of sin. The power of sin. In fact, you ought to say Satan is a pussycat compared to sin. Because Satan is just a picture and portrait of sin's dominion over man. You know, what was Cain warned about? Sin's desire is unto thee. Sin desires to have us. Sin desires to keep us and have us in bondage. The thing about Satan and sin, the, the, the line you can draw between the two of them that is very similar is that they are both enticing. You know, Satan doesn't come to you uh, to, in, in a terrible way, children. I want you to know that. In the Bible, it says Satan comes to us as an angel of light. And that's how he gets the shackles on us, doesn't he? It's because he actually comes as something that is quite enticing. Sin is the exact same way. Sin comes and it entices us. And it, it almost it makes us so willing to get, hand our hands over and say, enslave me. I want you. We hand ourselves over to sin willingly. Like Satan, sin whispers that God is cruel and God is unjust to not let us have of it. But you take the bite and then the shackles come on and you're made captive to sin. So, To look on this man's pitiable condition with the knowledge of Scripture is to see a man who is in great captivity to sin. The effects of sin on the human heart, unconverted, are profound. Sin has made us blind. Sin has made us insensible to God. We are not sensible of him. Sin has blinded. It's almost like, you know, you speak of spiritual things to the unbelieving And you see they're totally blind, aren't they? Until the Spirit of the Lord takes that blindness away in Christ. 
It's like you're speaking another language, a foreign language. They can't see what is plain in the Bible, right? You've run into this. Perhaps that I am old enough, well, I was converted late enough in life that I remember what that was like vividly. A man will speak the word of God to me and I'll say, this is just gibberish, essentially. But then the Lord frees me. And now the word of, of God comes alive and I can see Christ. The eyes of our understanding by sin have been completely shut. Ephesians 1.18. Sin has also made us dumb like this man. We don't praise God or glorify God with our tongues. The unbeliever has no desire to glorify God. Sad to say, too few believers do. But we are made to praise God and until Christ frees us, we will not use our tongue to bless God. We will not use our tongue to praise his name. We will not use our tongue to speak all day of the glory of God. This is the bondage all men are in by nature to sin. Psalm 51.5, we are conceived in sin. We are slaves to sin, Romans 6.20. This is speaking of the unbeliever, by the way, just so you're clear. When you see demon possession in the Gospels, it's an illustration then of our bondage to sin by nature. And this man in his pitiable condition, I hope you've meditated a bit on how pitiable his condition is. This man then is a picture of the total captivity that the sinner has to sin. He has no faculties to get himself out of his bondage. None at all, and neither does the sinner. He can't see to search out a way to help himself. He can't speak. He can't even cry out for help. He can't even say to Jesus, Son of God, help me. This is what's so marvelous about this man in a way. There is nothing he can do even to cry out physically to the Lord, help me, Jesus Christ. He is totally captive, without power. He needed pure mercy. He needed a sovereign Savior, one who all by himself can out of his compassion and power save this man? Could you imagine if the requirement was salvation were physical words to be uttered, Lord Jesus Christ, save me? Or was this requirement to walk towards the Lord himself and to throw yourself down physically before him and say, save me? This man would be utterly lost. We are thankful that salvation is entirely of the Lord and of his mercies. God has given us such a sovereign savior. And as we think on this man and his captivity to Satan and our own relationship to original sin, remember 1 John 3, 8, he that committeth sin is of the devil. So we see this connection, don't we? For the devil sinneth from the beginning. That's our thraldom to Satan. But... For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. To which we say, praise God. And you see it here. It's very plain and clear in our text. This is why he was manifest. And remember the Lord's first sermon that he ever preached. After his baptism, after his anointing, he goes to the synagogue. He takes the scroll of Isaiah. And how does he himself preach about his ministry? Out of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach what? 
deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. This is what Christ has come to do, to free us from our captivity to sin and Satan, to give us sight of himself, that we might have sight because we were once blinded, that the eyes of our understanding, that our mind would no longer be darkened by sin, that we would know him and that we would be set at liberty, we who have been bruised by sin and Satan's captivity. This is why the Son of God has come into the world, because we can do none of these things ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot work up to God ourselves. We are blind and mute. We can't even cry out to God. So praise God that Christ has come into the world out of the goodness of God. And what he has preached, that he has come to do, Christ in fact does do. Christ banished this foul spirit from the man. We've seen that in other places, how there is no sense there's a struggle here. Christ touches the man essentially by the finger of God. We'll see what that means later. And the devil This demon is cast out and the man is set free. This devil is banished and the dumb, the mute man spake and the people marveled at it all. And you know, Christ didn't, here Luke is only speaking of the muteness of the man, but we know Christ removed his blindness as well. In Matthew's um, gospel, we read the blind and dumb both spake and saw. So once he was blind, now he can see. Once he could not speak, but now his tongue is loosed. You know, in this, we see that Christ is no partial savior, is he? He saves completely and to the uttermost. He doesn't just give him his speech and keep him blind. He doesn't just give him his sight and take away and still keep his mouth constrained to the devil. He frees all of the man and he frees all of you as well, totally and completely. If you are his, take heart, beloved. He will save you completely, completely. There's not a part of your soul. There's not a part of your body either that he will not save. He is a complete and total savior and he doesn't do anything partial. He will do all things well. He does all things well. But for a moment, I want you to imagine what it was like for this man who suddenly, we don't know how long he was in captivity, but we can imagine it was a very long time, if not for uh, his whole existence thus far. But can you imagine what it was like for a man who was blind that long, yet now light streams into his eyes for the first time? All things were black and dark, but now things are, are full of color and full of vibrancy and full of light, and he can see There's dimensionality. As another man said, one thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. Translated from darkness into Christ's marvelous light. And think of what must have been his first, his first sight to see Christ, his beloved Savior before him. What a wondrous thing that would have been for the man. We'll see that these are just spiritual things that we'll get to for ourselves. And now his tongue held captive by the devil Now he can speak. 
Now he can speak. And you have to imagine one of the first words, if not the first word out of his mouth was, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I could do nothing. Now I can speak. Put yourself in the moment of this man's deliverance and how marvelous it must have been for the man. How much joy there must have been in the Savior for him to do what no man could ever have done for him, to see that there is none who could have freed him but Christ. And now being free, his eyes, and we know his mind and his tongue and his heart set free from the captivity to the devil. How glad, how joyous he must have been. It made me think, and again, physical things have a deeper spiritual reality. So always think in that way. It made me meditate, and you may have seen such videos before. You've probably seen videos that made their way around the internet of um, especially children who have received, who are deaf, who have received like cochlear implants, right? And I was thinking of one boy birth, uh, from birth had been deaf. You know, the technician turns on the implant for the first time and the boy's father says, daddy loves you. And it's the first time he had ever heard his father speak. And the awe on this, this little boy, the awe on his face and the joy and the delight to hear his father as one of the first voices in his whole experience speak to him. And you know, if you've seen such videos, you see those who are older maybe, who've lived a lifetime, who receive uh, hearing for the first time. You know, the joy comes, but then also the weeping, doesn't it? That I had been deaf for so long and now I can hear what has been all around me and I can hear my loved ones speak to me and so on. It's almost like, like we say, right? As the Bible says, old things are past, all things are new. And that's why Christ gives us these portraits of what salvation is like. And we are to take these physical things and see the deeper spiritual realities. This is what it is like when the Lord calls you and converts you, brethren. When he regenerates your dead heart and gives you spiritual eyes to see God in Christ. If you've been born again at a later age, you know something of this, I trust. You're once deaf to the word of God, but then you heard God speak in the word for the first time. And as that deaf child heard from his earthly father, you hear from your heavenly father with, what does he say? I have loved thee with an everlasting love and with loving kindness have I drawn thee. You hear such things for the first time from God out of his word. You hear Christ say unto you these marvelous things as you think on the burden of sin on your heart. Come unto me. O thou so weary and heavy laden by sin, and I will give thee rest. And you hear that. You may have even heard it for your whole life, but it has always been to you like those who are deaf and they just hear a mouth moving and they didn't penetrate into your heart, but now the words come and you hear the voice of Christ and you say, this is what God has been saying all this time as he gives you ears to hear. And you come unto him. And then you see Christ by faith as the blind man sees him and you cling to him. And like those who gained those hearing implants, you rejoice and you even weep, don't you? And you begin to praise God with a tongue 
that has been bound far too long by sin and you praise his name. Well, in view of these things, let's ask two spiritual questions. Why does God open our eyes in the new birth and why does God let loose our tongue? Simple questions, simple answers really, but answers we neglect. And I mean these things spiritually. You have never been probably in this congregation, I don't know any here have been blind and dumb, but these are related to spiritual counterparts. For our eyes, the Bible speaks of the eyes of our understanding. They are opened that we might know God. Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Your eyes are opened that you might have the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Christ. Not that we may look any longer on filth and uncleanness, but that we may look on him, that we may know him, that we might know his will for us in the word of God and to know the hope of glory that we have as the children of God, to ever set that hope before us, that of a truth we are headed to glory and that his power works for us. Then why are our tongues loosed from being mute? First Peter 2.9, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of what? Darkness and unto his marvelous light. If all has been black and dark, and now you see, why has your tongue been loosed that you may sing the praises of him that has done this? Whether in our praise, singing the Psalms, or simply speaking of the Lord to all as the Samaritan woman did, or the man that was freed from legion went to all his friends, speaking of what great things the Lord had done for him and what compassion the Lord has had on him. These are the things that the Lord has given to put into our mouth when we are freed of our captivity to speak highly of him. You think of the third commandment in that, right? Not taking the name of the Lord our God in vain, but speaking glorious things of him, saying God is love, God is just, God is holy. And he comes into our mouth as we speak of him. You know, Christ did not open your mouth so that you might not speak or you would sparingly speak adoring words of God. Christ and his word ought to be at the tip of our tongue constantly. We heard it in the call to worship. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness to the end that what? My glory may sing praise to thee and not be Silent. What a thing it would be if you would silence your tongue in the praise of God. This is a purpose for why Christ has freed you from captivity, not just to save you from hell, but that you might see him, that is, you might know him. You know him from the word. He has freed you to speak of him and to praise him. What great things he has done for sinners and our mouth ought to be used to this end. Well, maybe you've been blind and deaf to the Lord all of your life, but now you're starting to hear him. You're starting to perceive him in the word of God. 
in the preaching of the word, that is Christ opening your ears by his sovereign power. That is Christ opening your eyes to behold what wondrous things come out of the word of God. To hear him in the preaching of the word is to see that he is opening, unstopping your ears and he says, come unto him. If so, take him. Maybe he's been unintelligible to you for so long, but now he's removed the blindness and he's removed from your mind the the haze that uh, sin has put over it. If so, come unto him, put your faith in him, and he is then unbinding your tongue such that after the sermon, you are to open by faith your mouth in praise as we will sing Psalm 107, that you would say, Oh, that men to the Lord would give praise for his goodness then and for his works of wonder done unto the sons of men. But none of our mouths be stopped that we would praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works done unto the undeserving sons of men. As we contrast here the malevolence of sin and Satan and contrast it to the mercy of Christ, we are to praise Christ for it all. Now, I know I've gone very long on this first heading, but I do want, and I think it's necessary, to speak to those of you who are concerned about loved ones with special needs. Those who may not be able to see, those who may not be able to hear, maybe they cannot speak, maybe all of the above. Maybe their mental faculties show themselves unable to comprehend things. And you've wondered What shall I do with these? Will they ever come to know the Lord? Will they be saved? Can they be saved? I cannot communicate to them. They cannot tell me that Christ is their Savior and Lord, that they have faith in him. What do we do with these? Well, beloved, for your heart, see here the sovereignty of Christ to save. It's not dependent on their faculties. Christ can penetrate the dullest of minds, the hardest of hearts, those who cannot see, those who cannot speak, those who cannot hear, all of the above. Christ has compassion on those who are severely afflicted and can save them sovereignly. And for that reason, we glory that salvation is of the Lord, don't we? We glory in that. We are born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we are thankful because Christ is more compassionate than we are. So bring such into your prayers. Bring them before the Lord. Bring them to the places where his word is read and heard and preached. He uses such ordinances to save. These are the ways that Christ encounters his people. And so we are to bring them, bring them to the Lord, trusting in his mercy to save. Christ saves, remember this, He saves those who cannot save themselves. That is true of you, that is true of me, and that is true of all who are saved of the Lord. And let us remember that. With that encouragement, let us move to our second heading and let us consider the divided house. Well, even as the people marveled at the power of Christ set before them, others said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of devils. Now, children... Beelzebub was a pagan deity, the Lord of the Flies. Um, But at the time of Christ, the Jews had referred to Satan in this way, the chief of angels, of fallen angels, in this way. So to say that Christ cast out a devil by Satan is pure blasphemy. In Matthew 12, 
you find out, to no surprise, it was the Pharisees that said it. These men being relentless, stopping at nothing to discredit our Lord, as you well know. Why is that? Well, if they admitted that these were true miracles of God, then they would have to admit that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and he must be then their Lord and Savior. And their prominence over the people of God would come to an end. And that's really the big problem for them, isn't it? They desired to hold on to their prominence among men, and that would end if they admitted that Christ is Lord. Now, what we want to see in these things again, is a picture of how hard the sinner's heart is when they reject Christ. Nothing ought to be more obvious in that moment than Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. When this man, who had been captive by a devil, has been freed of it, and how absurd it will be, Jesus will show us, to think that Satan would have done this thing. This is how hard a sinner's heart is, Sin and idolatry makes us utterly irrational. Irrational. We don't believe what should be plain as the nose on our face, in other words. This is the hardness of unbelief. Every sinner who rejects Christ, when he is preached out of the word, rejects what is plain and obvious, that he is the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to God but by him. The reason is the hardness of the sinner's heart. There is no honest rejection of Christ, in other words. You have no honest reason to reject Christ. Men don't. It is the hardness of the human heart. It is the captivity we have to sin and Satan that causes us to reject Jesus if we have. Sinners deny Christ's miracles, his resurrection, his word. Why? Because to admit Christ is God incarnate means that they would have to surrender sin and they would have to live for him. And sin has such a hold on the sinner's heart that that is the one thing they will not do naturally. And this is why the power of God must come to free us. But, let me say to you, sinners, to surrender your sin must be your joy. To give up your sin. And I speak this even to the Christian who is cherishing some secret sin. To surrender it ought to be your joy. Can you not see from this text what sin is like? This horrifying, miserable captor that wants to bind you and keep you in misery. But Christ here comes to set us free. You're to turn to him and away from sin. No more excuses, no more blasphemy like the Pharisees in rejecting him. Come to him and be saved. Sin is misery. And if you are saved, let me just come back to you for a moment. Why would you hand yourself over to sin's bondage? Why do that? Backslider, let me say, you are reverting to spiritual blindness. You're reverting to a condition in which you refuse to praise God. Sin is giving you spiritual cataracts and your sight of the Lord is very dim right now because you have handed yourself to sin and you are refusing to praise God as you ought to be found in worship and to praise him and to speak high and lofty things of him because sin is shackling your tongue. And in both cases, in any case, you are to turn back to the Lord. You no longer speak of Christ as you once did, do you? 
That is the effect of sin on you backsliders. Turn to the Lord. He will receive you. He will open your eyes wide open again, and he will remove what has clasped your tongue so that you may praise him again. Just turn from your sin and turn to the Lord, beloved, and he will do it. Well, back to the Pharisees. Let's see how our Lord responded to their accusation. Verses 17 and 18 say, But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. First you notice here, maybe you need to know this, the Lord knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. Perhaps the Pharisees didn't fully vocalize the depths of their blasphemy amongst the people. Why might that be? Well, you know that they didn't want to speak against John the Baptist either because he was so popular, right? And so maybe they didn't fully vocalize. Maybe they're mumbling amongst themselves that this man is casting devils out by Satan. Maybe that's you today. Here you are in the midst of God's people and you have hidden your thoughts of Christ and they're blasphemous and you have not turned to the Lord. Well, Christ knows your thoughts. Maybe you're saying these thoughts aren't popular in the church, but I'm going to nurture them and hide them. I'm not really going to turn over to Christ. He knows. He sees. You need to put those thoughts away. And you need to submit yourself to the Lord in every way. You cannot hide from the Lord. Well, Christ shows that the Pharisees' thoughts, like all blasphemy, is absurd. For if you cast out devils through Beelzebub, then Satan is at war against Satan. And Satan's kingdom would collapse. A house divided against a house falleth. But I'm going to, and I'm going to go long today, so I'll tell you that in advance. Let me put the Pharisees aside for a moment. And I want you to consider the general principle here. A house divided against itself will fall. You and I must apply that principle to our own homes and to our church, churches as well. You know, Satan seems to understand this principle, but often the children of light do not. If our homes and our churches are divided against themselves, then they will fall and they will be desolate. They cannot stand. That's what Christ says. In your own home, if there are divisions, your home cannot stand. If there are divisions between husband and wife, you must reconcile them as soon as possible. Your house, how will it stand, beloved? If you are at war with one another, the ruin of it will be very great. And biblically, you must think of a house as one that is established, not just for the happiness of husband and wife, but also for generations to come. You're establishing a house that must not be divided so that there will be generations to come. Even in the second commandment, right? A thousand generations to come of them that love God and keep his commandments. That is what you are laboring for. And a house divided against itself will be ruined. And you will not see your children's children trusting in the Lord. Well, the same goes for our churches. This congregation cannot be divided or it will fall. If it does not go forward with great unity, especially with ministerial elections and what other major decisions are before the congregation, elders and deacons, perhaps a building one day, God willing, we must 
not be divided against ourselves. There must not be factions among us, and we must not be at war with each other. It's fine to disagree, but we disagree as brethren. Not at war with each other, or else the church falls. Same goes for ministers and elders. In the greater church, there are disagreements amongst us. Fair enough, but we must not be at each other's throats. It's a struggle for the flesh, but we remember here the kingdom must not be divided. The strange thing is Christ intimates the devil and his kingdom know this much. They're not so foolish. Demon is not pitted against demon, yet strangely Christians often are. We may disagree, but never be at war, or else we will be desolate. Let's think on that, brethren. We have a common foe, Satan, sin, the world. We are to be united against these major powers. We're not to be at war with each other. Look at the homes. Let's think of homes and churches. Look at the homes in America, even Christian homes. How many have been made desolate? Look at the churches in America. How many have been made desolate even in the Reformed Presbyterian Church? Too many, far too many. The evil one knows this teaching of Christ and actually uses it in a negative way, doesn't he? He actually goes, yes, of course, a kingdom divided against itself can't fall, uh, must fall, and so I will sow dissension among brethren. I will sow dissension in your home so that these Christian institutions would fall. Of course, the Lord will ultimately see that these things will not happen, but it might happen in individual churches and homes. So let us take heed. Well, with that, let us consider the power that Christ used. It was not Satan, so where did the power come from? This will be our final heading, the stronger power. So Christ most certainly did not leverage the power of Satan to cast out demons. So what power was it? It's the power of God. The power of God, his power according to the divine nature. In verse 20, Christ said he cast out the devil with the finger of God. Matthew 12, 28, parallel text. Christ said, I cast out devils by the spirit of God. Once again, you find the entire Trinity at work, don't we? When we see the marvelous works of God, the son is active in the person of Christ. The spirit is at work too. And where the son is at work, the father is at work. My father worketh hitherto and I work, John 5, 17. So our salvation is the work of the entire triune God. Let's not forget it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, these three indivisible of the same divine essence doing the same divine work. We've considered that before. Time is too short to consider it again. But this text I just presented as further evidence of it. So Jesus says that his finger is the finger of God. And that is meant to remind the Pharisees of something, which is the Exodus. You were... Remember the third plague on Egypt, the plague of lice. Let me read it from Exodus eight sixteen through 18. And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod, and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod, and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. So here's this plague that the Lord brings on Egypt. And Pharaoh's magicians tried to replicate the miracle and could not. 
But then the next verse, we read this. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Now this is very deliberately chosen by our Lord, as you can probably understand. The Pharisees would have known the reference quite well. They would have known Exodus very well. You know, the magicians of Egypt, when they saw the miracle, when they saw the lice, they saw they could not replicate it. Just as the Pharisees could not perform the exorcism, what did the magicians say? This is the finger of God. They said, God is at work here. But what was Pharaoh's response? His heart was hardened. His heart was hardened. He did not listen. Though it was indisputable to plain sense and reason, this is God. Pharaoh's heart is so hard, he did not admit it. So what is Christ saying? He's saying, O blind Pharisee, who will not use your tongue to praise me, but to blaspheme me, you are like the Pharaoh. You are like the Pharaoh. Your heart is this hard. I use the finger of God. I have the finger of God. And yet you will not see. These other people, they marvel, just like the magicians did, but you will not. You are like the Pharaoh. You are ungodly. So I want you to see here, and we're often blind to it ourselves, who here is the true blind and mute person? It is the Pharisee, isn't it? Here is spiritual blindness. Here is spiritual dumbness in the Pharisee, one who is totally in captivity to Satan and sin. And so we often focus on the man who was loosed and we say how awful their captivity, his captivity was. But here is the unbeliever in the Pharisee, so blind and so unwilling to praise God for what is obviously the work of God. Which is why in Matthew 23, Christ called the Pharisees fools and blind. Here is the frightful captivity of the unbeliever in the Pharisee. And we have to be astonished by it. And we ought to praise God that we have been freed if we have faith in the Lord. And when a soul is freed, we'll end on this. Jesus says, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. You know, there is no doubt when we see a conversion, that the kingdom of God is in our midst because man cannot move man into the kingdom, but only God can. And so when you see conversions, you know two things. First, the finger of God has saved this person. And second, the kingdom has come amongst us. So the kingdom is amongst us here because amongst us are those who are converted, those who have been converted even in this congregation. And when we see conversions, we say, this is the finger of God, and we are to consider that a holy thing. A holy thing. When you see these things, well, maybe forget about seeing these things. What of you who are converted today? As I said in the intro, you say, it was the finger of God that out of the compassion of God reached into my heart and converted me. And I am part of the kingdom because of it. And God did this by sending his spirit into the world to set my heart free, to give me faith that I might see Jesus Christ in his word. And now all things are made new to me. 
because what Christ did, no man can do to remove the blindness of my spiritual sense and now to free my tongue to praise and bless his holy name. Praise him then after the sermon as we come to the singing of praise from the heart that he has had this compassion on you while he has passed over so many like the Pharisee in our text that he has given you a sense of himself, which is the greatest sight of all. Well, we'll have to leave Luke there due to time and we'll pick it up, God willing, another day. May our meditation, though, on this text be sweet. Let us arise for prayer, if able. O oh, gracious God of heaven, how hard is our heart, O oh Lord, and how necessary is a sure and sovereign salvation from the Lord. And as our salvation is, in fact, sovereign, we pray that those who are here unconverted may encounter the Lord Jesus Christ today in the word of God and that the finger of God would reach down from heaven and turn the hearts here to the Lord our God that they may be saved and that they would add their praise to the praises of Israel. We pray for those who are converted. We pray that they who have walked away from the Lord, perhaps for a season, whose sight of Christ has grown very dim, might be given eyes to see the glory and majesty of Christ and that their tongues would be now loosed having been bound to sin in some way, their tongues would now be totally free to not praise Christ half-heartedly, but with a whole heart. May sin be put away from us. May we see what a terrible and evil captor it is. And may we never give sin the place that Christ alone must have. We bless the Lord for salvation. And we're thankful that salvation is of the Lord and not of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.